Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Wednesday, December 13th. I'm Hannah Floor. Trident Seafoods, one of the biggest seafood processors in the country, announced yesterday that it's selling a third of its Alaska plants. As Brian Venwa reports from Kodiak, it's a huge move for the company amid a tumultuous seafood market. Four of Trident's processing plants in Alaska are now for sale in Kodiak, Ketchikan, Petersburg, and False Pass. The company also announced a significantly scaled back winter season for their year-round plant in Kodiak. The historic Diamond NN Cannery in South Naknek and the company's support facilities in Chignik will either be retired or sold as well, according to the release. Multiple fishers contacted by KMXT said it was a huge surprise. Trident spokesperson Alexis Telford declined to comment, saying they're focused on their employees and fishing fleets at this time. The announcement comes on the heels of a reduced fall salmon fishing season across most of the state and just a month ahead of the opening of Kodiak's tanner crab season, which is expected to be the second largest harvest for that species in decades. There's a storm of issues in seafood markets right now. Processors have offered fishers some of the lowest prices for their harvest in years, sparking stand-downs and protests across the state. The Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute's conference in November pointed to declining demand for seafood, huge harvests, and foreign competition as some of the key problems. In a press release, Trident blamed similar reasons for its move to sell. The company's cost-cutting efforts also include laying off about a tenth of its corporate staff. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Venwa. Petersburg's tribe has an unusually contested election this year. Five seats are on the ballot, and incumbents are running to retain all five seats. Four new candidates are working together to challenge the incumbents, including council president. The four say they got interested in running when they felt consistently unheard during tribal decisions about how to spend more than $3 million in federal grant money. KFSK sat down with the four challengers and has this story. It's a Saturday night in early December, and a few dozen tribal citizens have gathered at Petersburg's John Hansen Senior Hall for a candidate meet and greet. This year, nine candidates are running for five open seats. That's not the norm in Petersburg. Rebecca Lee oversees elections for the Petersburg Indian Association, or PIA. Typically, we have enough people running to fill the vacant seats. Five of the candidates are incumbents. The four challengers are running on a united ticket. We really are a team. We don't, even the four of us don't agree on everything, but we respect each other and talk things through and either come to a consensus or agree to disagree. That's the Juksuk Deborah O'Gara. She's running for council president. The other challengers include Shaga Nathan Lopez and Kashkani Jeanette Ness, who are running for two of the three open two-year terms, and Data Everett Bennett, who's running for a one-year term. The meet-and-greet is hosted by the four challengers. They say they invited all five incumbent candidates to join. Current Tribal Council President Chris Morrison and board member Heather Kahn showed up. One much-discussed topic is the decision to lock PIA staff office doors while they are working during the week. Chad Wright is the tribal administrator and made the decision. He told KFSK he was concerned about the security of employees and property and the privacy of information discussed in offices with thin walls. So that was one way to, to protect the staff and the clients that, that we serve. Mm-hmm. You said we were concerned about security. Did you hear uh, from staff? Did you hear from council members? Who was concerned about I was security? concerned for the staff. Oh, okay. Yeah. Were there any incidents or, or anything that sort of sparked that concern? There was not. 
The office doors are now unlocked but remain closed. PIA's current policy requires an appointment 72 hours in advance to meet with staff members. All employees at PIA, including Wright, are non-native. O'Gara says the move to lock the doors made it seem like PIA employees feel threatened by tribal members and that tribal members are not welcome in their own government building. That has created the emotional reaction and there's um, a um, lack of accessibility to the staff by the tribal citizens. And so what has been created is completely opposite of what the four of us are actually running to help correct. O'Gara is running for tribal president. She's worked in the legal field for nearly half her life. She has lived in Petersburg for five years and is the only one of the challengers not born and raised in Petersburg. But Nathan Lopez, another new candidate, says she's the perfect fit for council president. She's able to facilitate the collective voice of the council. And so with the experience that she has, it is going to, I believe, it's going to bring the most out of our council. There are six members on the tribal council. The president does not vote except as a tiebreaker. The road to candidacy started nearly a year ago when PIA put out a call to the tribe for ideas on how to use $3.4 million in federal COVID relief money. Lopez says that got tribal members really excited about possibilities. What could happen for our culture? What could happen happen for education? What could happen for our children? It was just really exciting. Candidate Everett Bennett says there was a common theme that tribal citizens brought to the council. Yeah, I think it's sustaining culture. That was the key component that everyone had kind of touched on was how can we sustain our culture when it is, you know, aging and falling away and, you know, as you say, walking into the woods. But the four challengers say that the current council ignored tribal members' ideas and went ahead with the plan they had already been working on, a subdivision of rental housing for tribal citizens and the general public. O'Gara says she doesn't think the tribe needs more rentals. We've got, the tribe already has rental housing, and it's a headache to to manage too much. I mean, there, there's there's got to be a limit of how much before you just are, then your main income is from being landlords, which is, I don't think, a good, strong cultural base for the tribe to be in. Lopez says the four would like to see more opportunities for home ownership. The rental issue is good for the tribe. It's good for the finances of the tribe. Home ownership is good for the tribal citizen. There's a big difference. The four say it wasn't so much what the decision was as how the decision was made that rankled. Candidate Jeanette Ness says it felt like they had already made up their minds. It was so frustrating because people did have proposals or ideas and they had the council had asked for them. And then after it was all said and done, they go and vote on what they had in mind anyway. So it was sort of like, why did you bother? Why did we waste time? After the disagreement over the federal fund usage, more tribal citizens started to attend tribal council meetings. Soon afterward, the council voted to impose a five-minute limit on public comment. O'Gara says there should be an easy flow of communication between tribal citizens and the tribal government. I'm not quite sure how a tribal government, or any government for that matter, can effectively function without input from their citizens. The four challengers say that information about how the tribe is being managed isn't available. 
Tribal Administrator Chad Wright says that it's council policy not to make the council meetings informational packets or meeting minutes public. Lopez says the four candidates regularly attended tribal council meetings in the last year. We're continually looking at each other and saying, it'd be great if there was some change. And I think there came a point where we realized that we needed to be a part of that change. Once they'd filed for candidacy, they requested election regulations from PIA. They say they were told that while they could view the regulations at the PIA building, they were not allowed to have copies. Wright says the council decided it was best not to release the election regulations because they're antiquated and need to be updated. There's parts of it that don't make sense. I think if it would add to the confusion if it was out there and people saw that. O'Gara says the locked doors and the lack of transparency have led to a breakdown of trust between tribal members and the council and tribal administration. I think the, the point came out pretty loud and clear at the meet and greet for the candidates um, that there was a definite lack of communication and trust. Lopez says increased communication is the first step to solving the issues that candidates and community members discussed at the meet and greet. When you are sitting around a table with somebody, when you're allowing people to share what they feel and letting them get a little emotional and being okay that maybe they, their blood pressure rose a little bit because it's something tied to who they are. And Ness says it's one of the reasons she decided to run. I really want to improve that communication between the tribal citizens and the council. It just seems like it's been so closed door that the tribal citizens don't have a voice anymore. Cultural revitalization is central to the Challengers platform. They see that as intertwined with a strong sense of community that would come from rebuilding trust. For Bennett, part of what is missing is the community of their youth. I mean, I can just smell it thinking about it now. The food that was there and hearing all the aunties laugh. And we need to get back to the point where we can laugh together and share some food together. They say that tight-knit community would have bigger impacts. When you have a connected community, you reduce a lot of other issues that happen in the community. And you you reduce um, substance use. You reduce suicide. You, I mean, every aspect of any impact that happens on a community is reduced by connecting to a community. Despite the changes they'd like to make, the challengers are quick to insist that they appreciate the hard work of the current council members. Lopez says that while they may disagree with some of the decisions made by the council, the council members are tribal citizens and he wants to work toward unity within the tribe. I know each one of us, you know, we want to say, you know, thank you, goodness to them for the time that they put in. This is a great opportunity for us in this platform at this time to be able to make some new steps in some different directions. The tribe has roughly 250 eligible voters. Last year, just 26 people voted. That number is typical. Ness says she's talked with people this year, reminding them to vote. Pretty much 99% was they don't care anymore because they don't have the trust anymore. But Wright thinks voter participation is low for another reason. I think tribal citizens tend to be happy with the services that they receive. Um, so there's no reason to, you know, to vote differently or to, to make any change. This year, tribal members can vote early for the first time. The move is intended to increase voter turnout. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Floor. Two early voting days have already been held, and two more are scheduled before Election Day on January 8th. 
There have already been 29 early ballots cast, three more than were cast total in last year's election. The next early voting day is December 20th from 2 p.m. until 4.30 p.m. at the PIA building at 15 North 12th Street. And KFSK's coverage of PIA's incumbent candidates will air at 4.30 p.m. today. Full stories can be found at kfsk.org. Information on candidates, early voting, and election day can be found at piatribal.org slash election. The Arctic experienced its warmest summer on record this year. NOAA scientists say the record warmth is due to human-caused climate change. Findings are captured in the 2023 Arctic Report Card released yesterday by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Rick Spinrad, head of NOAA, spoke at a press conference in San Francisco yesterday morning. He said the dramatic shifts in Arctic lands, weather, and climate could not be overstated. This may be our 18th report card. I'd prefer to think of it as roughly six generations of Chinook salmon, but its message is more urgent than ever. The time for action is now. Many Alaskans were involved in the observations and writing that went into the report card. A network of coastal indigenous observers from Kotzebue to Kaktovik contributed their work. The report sea ice loss, warmer oceans, and more intense storms that contribute to flooding and erosion. Roberta Glenn Borade is from Utkiavik and helps coordinate the network, known as the Alaska Arctic Observatory and Knowledge Hub. She said climate change has created challenges for local infrastructure, cultural traditions, and subsistence resources. But she sees resilience in her region. There's strength in sharing our voices, in sharing our histories, our knowledge, our concerns, and our ideas for how to move forward. And there's strength in being proud that we have survived as a people to make it this far, to be able to continually thrive in our region, living off the land and sea. And we don't plan on stopping soon. The annual report card examines physical and biological changes in the Arctic. Scientists from around the circumpolar north described a wetter, warmer, less frozen Arctic that is more prone to extreme climate events like wildfire and flooding. The report also highlighted recent unprecedented low returns of chum and Chinook salmon in western Alaska. Researchers say tracking these changes in the Arctic is important because they serve as an early indicator of how climate change will affect the rest of the planet as it warms. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.